What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast for AOTG.com, and this episode we have colorist John Dowdell, and he's a DI colorist for the film Carol at Goldcrest Post Production in New York City. John's done over 200 features, including documentaries, fictions, as well as commercials, and if you check out his filmography on IMDb, you'll be pretty blown away by some of the work he's done. So one of the reasons I wanted to interview him was because... Carol got nominated for an Oscar for Cinematography, and he played a pretty big part in that, in making the look and feel of Carol. Of course, we couldn't have gotten this interview without the help of Katie Hinson from the Blue Collar Post Collective. Uh, You can check out their stuff at bluecollarpostcollective.com, and if you're in New York, definitely check out some of their events. They do some great work out there. But in the meantime, please enjoy my interview with John Dodell. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is that Carol is a very gorgeous film. It's a very beautiful, beautiful film. I was wondering if you could tell me about the DI workflow and your experience of being a colorist on this film. I'll tell you, it was just an amazing experience and it's a great story. One review I had read, and I, I want to quote it, was, Carol is an achingly gorgeous film from the first frame to the last. Wow. You know, if I had to choose, I would tell you, I've done a lot of films in my life. Look at my IMDb, over 200 films. If I had to choose one film in my career that absolutely demonstrated DI Post at its best, it would be Carol. I really kind of really consider it the masterpiece of my long career. You know, I really honestly feel like it has a really good chance for the cinematography Oscar. Ed won this year's very prestigious, the Golden Frog, best cinematography. It's well in the way. People notice it visually. You know, so much talent and craft come together to visualize Carol. You know, you have the just extraordinary Todd Haynes, who's just amazing to work with. And I just love his work. And as a person too, he is just amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Just a very compassionate, nice, calm, very, very organized, just a terrific, terrific person. And then of course you got cinematographer Ed Lockman, who, you know, is just extraordinary. I think I don't know if this is his first nomination, but I know if he wins, it will be his first Oscar. But, I mean, he's got an amazing career. He is just an incredibly talented person, and to really emphasize how powerful he's been. And, of course, you know, in making a film, we have to give a lot of credit to Judy Becker, uh, you know, as the production designer. And it's just extraordinary how, you know, the look and the feel, the textures, the costuming, the the sets, just amazing. Like, she created that whole department store that starts, and it's just an amazing piece with detail and all the dolls and the period and the feeling of the department store in 1952. And of course, a lot of credit goes, and if you interviewed already, was Alfonso, Alfonso Congales. And he uh, he's just an extraordinary editor. Uh, I've worked with him before on other films. Just a super guy, first of all. He's a guy you enjoy just hanging out with and chatting about film. Very easy and very, very passionate person and uh, very, very competent. But I think he, the edit is really fantastic. The production design, like you mentioned, was really beautiful. Did you guys work with like a color palette between you or were you discussing things with the production designer at all or was that kept separate? No, that's that's long before I come into the picture. You know, Mm -hmm. that's done during the production. But I have to appreciate her work. And it's very important because that, you know, when you now have the film and how the colors of the production design were captured in film and then what we could do with it. Because so much of that is... What makes it so beautiful, you know? The costuming, the textures, the right colors. Kate's amazing mink coat. (laughs) 
And I mean, that is truly a coat from that era. Yeah, you know? I was going to say, and, you don't see those coats that often. No, no, no. Kate looked at modern ones and said, no, 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 it's not right, not right, I heard. And then she said, she found this and said, that's it. <laughs> and she wore it through the whole show. And one amusing piece, I have to tell you, is that towards the end, it started falling apart. Oh, wow. So CGI had to fill it in. It looked, it looked great. <laughs> oh, it came out great. <laughs> and it took light beautifully. But actually, when, when Todd... When we started, uh, when we finally got into the DI room, Todd and Ed, and they were with me every minute. One of the first things we did was uh, we sat down for well over an hour uh, with this big tear sheet book that Todd had at every phase of the production. And, of course, he worked it with Judy and whatever. And the looks at that period, he had all kinds of tear sheets. There were ads. Uh, there were photographs. There was um, some of the, one of the few photographs of Ruth Orkin, who I love very much, and different photographers and period. And there was text. There was something about the color that was the color they wanted. And it was good because it gave us a common viewpoint of where we wanted to take this film. Because, you know, so much can be done in the DI process. You can take the film anywhere. <laughs> you know? And we had to be focused for that look for 1952. And as, as Ed said, he wanted to look more like ectochrome than kodachrome. And if you know, it was still photography back then. You know, kodachrome is this vibrant, you know, bigger than life color. Ectochrome always had the more muted little more cyan, a little greener, a little less mm -hmm. chromer, you know, it was just, you know, and that's what he kept focusing on. So th this is more ectochrome now. So I understood being a, my background is photography. So I, I definitely could relate to that. Almost more muted trained. colors. More muted. Definitely. Muting was the word. We did a lot of muting. So many times on a shot, it would be you know, keeping the colors down and also getting the colors dirty. And the that is that's a word I said they said so many times to me, dirtier, dirtier, dirtier. And what that would mean is if you had a scene that was kind of warm and the flesh tones are warm, the background's a bit warm, and you started putting green in it, of course the green is the complement of the warmth, and suddenly it makes it dirty. It becomes browner, desaturated, and the green kind of creeps in. And that's dirty. <laughs> and it's a great look. And also color was used very importantly for the um, transitions of the film. Like in the opening, uh, Rooney is in a bad place. She's in this dreadful department store, not happy, doesn't know where her life or careers going and and it's a bad time so we went very purposely fairly green it's actually very green and it starts also with the cafeteria which is real green like really bad fluorescence and just an ugly place to be you know and then the department store floor the the toy department you know is lightly green but again it's not a warm cuddly place you want to be you know and so that was very important and then as the film progresses, then it progressively gets, as relationships build, it's more warmth and beauty, a little more color comes into it. So it was really a timeline of color. It was very important continuity-wise to keep this going. It was a lot of fun to do, I must say. And that was part of the book, or was that something you guys figured out in post? Oh, in post, yes. Yeah, the book gave actually what would happen on the book, which was actually cool. I have a, you know, de-illuminate reference light that's used to look at photographs. So that was on the desk with Todd. And he would open a page and turn on the light, and I, you know, Todd's in front of me on another desk, below me, and 
it would look at the screen, look at the picture, look at the screen, and I would be able to see both and go, hmm, let's see, I, I think we can even use less saturation. What do you think? Actually, we can even go a little dirtier. And then suddenly we're down on the screen, it goes, damn, that, yeah, that's it. We, we got it matched. That's what I want, you know? And it was a lot of fun. I've never worked that way. <laughs> well, the, the film was actually shot on Super 16. So I'm wondering, you know, what was your workflow for something like that? I really, really am pleased that that was selected. I mean, they were right on. Uh, to like Super 16, you know, as the capture format instead of a modern digital camera. You know, 35 film these days, you know, it's so fine-grained that it's almost too perfect. Film in those days in 52 was before T-grain emulsions and other film advances. So it, you know, was fairly gritty, <laughs> gritty actually. <laughs> and uh, if you look at old movies, so the Super 16 emulated that pretty much as if this was, you know, a 35 millimeter rainier film. But film... I have to admit, my passion is film. I mean, I've been involved in film for many, many years, and I, I just love it. I love the technology. And again, I have a photographic background and a degree in photography and photo science at, from RIT. So I approach it very much technical, how amazing film is, you know, and how beautiful it is. And I mean... Um, my favorite thing was being in a dark room, you know, and making prints and color prints. I was a very good printer and a very good black light printer. And the idea of a beautiful image and what you can get out of film, where the shadows fall, where the midtones fall, where the highlights fall. And the other beautiful thing about film is every frame of film is the sensor. Mm -hmm. So every frame as it's going through camera is another sensor. <laughs> You know, and the grain is random. So therefore, as you're playing it back 24 frames a second, they kind of blend together a little bit and give you a very strong, sharp image. If you stand on one frame, it might look a bit grainy. But as it moves, the grain is moving through and a piece that didn't little grain over there moves over on the next frame over there and over there and it, it evens out. Plus, it has a different feeling how it takes shadows and highlights. So if the film is underexposed, it gets a little grainier. And if it's more exposed, it's less grain. So there is this kind of rhythm in the film of grain changing and moving. It's almost alive, you know, and there's there's an earthiness and a beauty about it and that you can't get digitally. Because in digital, your sensor is a fixed pickup, you know, it's a CMOS in our camera with a Bayer filter and the pixels are locked, you know. One nice thing about film, if a piece of dirt falls on, it's only one frame. <laughs> if it falls on your sensor, it's for the whole take, you know. But anyway, film was a great choice. And uh, they used the Aeroflex Super 16 camera, which is pin registered. And we have at Goldcrest, the Airy film scanner, which is the best there is, I believe. And the Airy scan is pin registered. And this is very important because there are over 100 effect shots in the film. So we needed a very stable platform, you know, picture to work with. The Airy also is kind of unique because it does two exposures. It, you, it has a sensor. Actually, the sensor is a CMOS sensor, the same one that's in the Alexa camera. Kind of interesting. It's a 3K sensor, but it's black and white. doesn't have a Bayer filter on it. And how it gets the light is the film is in the gate, pin registered, and there's LEDs that fire off red, green, and blue. And they go into an integrating sphere. It's diffuse and it goes through the film and it's picked up by the CMOS. And then what it does, it does like an HDR, kind of an early HDR concept because the next time the same frame stays and it fires the red, green, and blue 10 times brighter. And then it merges the two together. But what you get is a very quiet image. The dark parts, the really D-max parts of a negative have the same similar noise as the thinner parts of the negative, the shadow parts. So 
Whereas if you tried one exposure, you would be trying to get those photons of light out through that dark parts of negative and pick up noise. So you get a really quiet picture and it captures, it shoots in 3K, that's Canon sensors 3K, and then it subsamples down to 2K. And that's always a good thing to oversample. So that your oversample to 2K is great. We export it as a DPX 2K image, and that's what I work through then through the whole process in log space. Also, the AeriScan has one additional thing that's extremely important, especially working with Super 16, and that is it uses Kodak Digital Ice. And that invention, what happens is that there's an infrared exposure that additionally is added that right after RGB, ba-bump. Now, infrared goes through the cyan, magenta, and yellow dyes of the film without stopping. But if there is a particulate on the film, light is held back. And it maps how much light is held back in that subpixel area. And then, very cleverly, it will raise the light value, you know, in the, the captured image. It will raise the value to compensate for how much light was lost. And then if the particulate is so dense that zero light gets through, then it goes into kind of a copy brush and it very cleverly works the surrounding pixels and fills in the spec. Not only does the big specs, but there's all that little tiny diddly stuff that you would never even try to paint out. And then if something is really like the stuff that is not dirt, like film handling, uh, watermarks and stains and chemical stains, things like that. Then the system I use is the Quantel, and they, of course, invented the paint box, and that's part of my machine. So I just can paint out those frames. I just do a copy brush or a copy or or copy the pixels from the frame before, you know, and so that's how it's done. So very important. We actually, there's not one speck of dirt in that film. We went through, we had so many eyeballs on that film play it. And it seems like every time we played it back, we saw another little specky or something, a little problem. And anyway, now it's pristine. <laughs> so, But that's Super 16. It just has such a great look. Also, Super 16 film just gives me so much depth to work with. It's like the ever-ready battery. It's going and going and going. I mean, yeah. I can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into shadows. It's like they never end. I can always milk out, you know, stretch out a little bit more zones in that dark black. And it holds highlight detail beautifully because a photographic curve, if you look at the old codex spec sheets and all, it's a it's an S-curve. It's a what we call the D log E curve, delta log versus the shadow starts off as you start getting exposure and it's kind of flat and it starts going up and that's called the toe. And then there's the straight line. And then it rolls off and becomes what's called a shoulder. And that is the classic film curve. And that is very important because what happens is the highlights roll off in a very gentle way. They never go to a clip. And you can just keep going. It's amazing how many stops there's still information in that highlight. Even though the display immediately when you first do a color correction doesn't show it, you can keep digging and digging and digging and find more highlight information and more shadow. It's just a, it's just a beautiful way to capture imagery. Now, you, you mentioned you used the Quantel. What was, that, what was the system that you used? I've used every kind of color correct in the world over the years. But this system is more than a color correct. It's the Quantel Pablo Rio 4K, made by Quantel. Again, there are people invented the paint box years ago and many other, many other things and Harry, Henry, all that. So all this technology they invented over the years is in that my box. So it's not only a color corrector, but it's also the editor, conforming editor. And it's also a compositing tool. 
Uh, when I work a lot, I, I do a lot of chroma key work and I actually do the key in session, you know, which is great. You work color, foreground, background, does a beautiful keying. It's got trackers in it. It does paint, obviously. It works in multiple video tracks, which is very important, uh, especially with effects work we do, many layers and sending different transparencies, opacities between layers. Very important in both color correction and editing and conforming. The worst thing is, is you know, prior to the Rio, the original Quantel Pablo, you had to render everything. So I would do a color and then I would have to render it. And it's kind of annoying. And I thought, oh, it's rendering, rendering, rendering. rendering. Okay, yeah, now I'll play it. Of course, oh, that's very nice. Could you make them a little brighter? Of course, then you make it a little brighter. <laughs> render, 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 render. You know? It is so amazing. And the speed of it, just to throw a color, immediately play it. You know, throw a color, immediately play it. And you just keep working and working and working. And in the background, it's rendering anyway what you've done in the past. So you never, ever have to stop to render. And that really speeds up the session. And, you know, clients, it moves the session. They don't get bored, obviously. Yeah. And it goes faster. So anyway, that's an important part of it. So what happens is they were able to, they can form it in a different room. I want to give a lot of credit to Boon Shin, who is my right-hand person on this whole project. She was the one who did all the scanning on the Airy and was our conforming artist. She was just amazing. And she also coordinated all the effects work with the effects companies and whatever. But she was there and also did you know, laying around titles and everything all on the same box. So as it's conformed, I even have the titles on title layers. I'm actually coloring and I have titles right there. I can actually see what the image is going to look under a title, which is really nice. And the, the tracks are on it, multiple, multiple tracks. So uh, Bunshin now has prepared it for me. Now we had a lot of effects work, over a hundred effect shots in it. And we worked with uh, Chris Haney, it was just our effects supervisor that was brought into the project. And he has his own company. Plus, he also farmed it out to a couple of other, because there was so much work to do. So a couple of other very good effects houses in New York. So anyway, that would be fine. So what would happen is after I did the color correction with Todd and Ed, and then we approved kind of a color of a shot, but we know it's going to go to effects because there's going to be a building removed, the signages changing, multiple, multiple, multiple effects. Then what would happen is Mushin would send that file as a log file to the effects to Chris. And then I would also, she would take my color correction as a separate file and send it. So they would see the the original log OCN and they would all my color correction. And what they could do is they could put those two together and do a difference key type thing and make a LUT out of that. So once they have a LUT, then they can put that on their whatever their effects, after effects or whatever they're working on. So they can do all the effects work on what we want the color to look like. So if there's a certain building and a density and a feeling they have to make, or they did all the snow, you know, the opacity of snow, what that's going to look like. That snow is very effectively done. You know, uh, the Christmas tree, that's all CGI, believe it or not, buying this Christmas tree. So, of course, now they're seeing the image and they can see what brightness the snow should be and the opacity of the show and whatever. So now they do the optical and then Chris would come in with it and Todd and Ed, we would convene and we would drop it into the timeline and I could apply my color correction that we had approved and then play it back in context. And sometimes he had two or three different versions. And, you know, I could put them on different video layers and play it from video layer one, two or three and show them three alternative versions of it. And then the one that's selected then becomes part of the show. But that was a very effective way to work. And it was a lot of back and forth. A few weeks of color correction because it, was, it wasn't all color. It was effects work, too. We were waiting for effects, would reconvene and do more color and more effects. 
books. And it was a tremendous amount of work. Now, can you tell me about what your working relationship with Todd and Ed were in terms of the DI and your approach to color correcting with them? The um, principal relationship was terrific. And again, I just admire them both. They also are very passionate and opinionated about the look that they want. So what happens is sometimes as a colorist, the important part of our job is to be a referee and an arbitrator. Yeah. <laughs> so we had some lively discussions, to put it that way. Todd wanted to go one way, Ed wanted to go that way, you know, and that's part of the process, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's part of my job to kind of arbitrate it and also to diplomatically show one version and the other version. And what do you think? Let's play it again. Let's say well, you have a way of going, you want it darker, you want it lighter, you know, I almost feel like an eye doctor. Is that lens better or this lens better? But then also sometimes I can see both and kind of knowing that what they're asking for, maybe there's even an alternative that will kind of merge what they're both trying to get at that's even maybe better, and it's something they both like. So a lot of color correction was that. You know, believe me, we we worked on every shot and right to just minutia, minutia of value, you know, just the nuance of flesh tone or the darkness, where the shadow should be, where the highlight's falling. Very, very, very delicate color correction. What were some of the techniques that you used that differentiated this from other colorist work or other color projects that you've worked on? Actually, I have a kind of somewhat a unique approach to color correction that is probably a lot different than, you know, the colors that might be uh, listening to this podcast. And let me share them with you. And I'm just very happy to share them because they might work for them. One of the most important things on the Quantel, it has a, a true film curve. It has an S-curve adjustment. And I, I find it my most powerful tool there because let me step you through how you color correct. The first thing you do is you have the negative, you know, now on the screen. Mm -hmm. It works a projection, obviously, uh, with a cinema projector. And now you have the image. The first thing you want to do is always balance out your red, green, and blue, your shadows, your midtones, and highlights. You basically want it to track. If it was a grayscale, the blacks would be black, they'd be gray throughout the mid-range, and highlights would be white. You know, that's mm -hmm. called tracking or balancing. The first thing you do is you look at the image and you delicately look at your RGB scope and your parade and you delicately place the blacks just so they're not crushed, but they're just dancing on black. And you get as much of the highlight detail as possible. In the Quantel, the way it works is you use a preset, you know, pre-balance that will basically turn the log file into a linear. You, I work from 0 to 1023. So that's not clipped at all. That's everything that's in the film. So on this pre-process, it converts it. So 0 to 1023 gives me the full range. Nothing is clipped. So now I want to hold as much highlight detail as possible. Try if possible just to even not let it clip whatsoever. So now I have an image that's black, that has a grayscale, and then the whites. And it tracks. Now the, I go into what's called film curve. And that S curve will lock my highlight and lock my shadow pretty much in place and change the shape of that S. What we were talking about before, the film curve, that S from shadow to midtone to highlight, it will change it. So you're changing the grayscale values of how you're going from shadow to highlight, all or mostly the midtones, where they're falling in a grayscale or a zonal scale. And it's a very, very powerful because you can actually get super dark blacks. Sometimes I really want it dark. But in the past, people have had to crush the blacks in order to do that. And because gamma, you have, you know, in color correction, you have lift, gamma, and gain. So your lift is your pedestal, your blacks. 
And then, of course, gain is your whites. And then gamma, but gamma is very linear. So if you're trying to make something very, very dark, if you just changing the linear gamma is not going to necessarily bring it black, it's going to put the midtones in the wrong place. And in order to do it, often you had to crush blacks. We don't want to crush the blacks. The QC police will be after you hide there. And also, blacks don't want to be crushed. You want to look in that black and have detail after detail after detail. When you look at Carol on the screen, you can look deep in the blacks and you can see textures, let's say, in a velvet hat or hair, deep into the hair. Mm-hmm. And that's because the blacks are in the right place. It's There's not one crushed image in that whole film. So anyway, years ago when I was telecine doing commercials, one of the things the clients would walk in the room, the first thing would say, all right, crush the blacks, stretch the whites. Well, what they were trying to do is negative. We always called it kind of a neggy look, film neggy. They've always had a kind of a flat look and on a telecine trying to get it to video had a fairly flat look. And so by crushing the blacks and stretching the whites, they were trying to stretch those midtones to give a more dynamic feel. But of course, you've got crushed blacks and stretch whites. So now you have your cake and eat it. You've got beautiful textured dark blacks and beautiful whites and a rich midtone scale. You know, so that's the film curve. The next thing I do is then I go into printer lights and now. A lot of the audience may not have ever worked in printer lights or even know what it is, but it's on almost every one of the, it's on DaVinci and Luster and all the machines and of course my Quantel. What printer lights do is they emulate what it would be in a film lab. In the way film is timed, you work with a film timer and you have your negative and you work with a printer light. So, because you're making a contact print and it's photo-optical and chemical. And what you're doing is... The timer only has three controls, red, green, and blue on a hazel team. And they were set in lights. There are six points, six light points equals one f-stop, basically. And you've got red, green, blue. You know, if you turn red one way in print lights, you go to print lights one way, it's more red. If you go the other way, it's its complementary color, cyan. And the same with blue and yellow. Um, <laughs> red, green, <laughs> blue. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, what happens here is the printer light responds the way film would work in a film printer. So if the timer was asked to add two points of red, it's turning red on the film curve and it's adjusting that film red curve and it's affecting part of the shadow, the midtones and the highlights in the proper proportion that film would react to. So it's a much more filmic feeling. So that is the way I did all the color correction. I almost never touched the differential. The differentials are, you know, in the balls, you know, one way you take the highlights and push it towards yellow or the shadows you push towards blue, whatever. That's called differentials. The problem with the differential is you have your perfectly, ba- remember you balanced your curves perfectly balanced. And now you know, with differentials, you start screwing them up. You throw the white out of balance, the midtone, let's say you're trying to make the white warmer, now the your curve is out of balance and when we change density it doesn't track your color changes there's no more tracking when you work on a printer light it tracks because you've never changed your grayscale transfer you got your same curves red green and blue balanced properly and now you're manipulating and it's really powerful i mean you start dialing in and you have to turn one knob to go greener or bluer yellower redder and they're in points and the thing was was both todd and ed have done many films where they work with a timer in a film lab and this was a language they both understood very well so they were very comfortable with it because they could say hmm and once they got it they they loved it they would go let's see let's try putting four points of green in that and all i dial is green four points 
Because mm. again, this is balanced. Now the image is proportionally the way film would do that, adding the green to the shadows, midtones, the highlights. And they go, mm, I don't know. Let's see. Could I see two points? Oh, let's see. Uh, you know, forget it. Or let's say six points, you know, and then yeah. I would dial it. And so it was very interactive and fast because you immediately have a dial. You're dialing right into it. You go all the way six points or go 50 points. <laughs> 50 points is the end of the scale, you know, and then it's just pure red. <laughs> you know? And that's it. It's not a single color, not the red. But it, it really had to help the process. Plus, they're really subtle. I mean, you've got Kate's flesh and it's just radiant. Rooney and Kate take light so beautifully. And film, something magical about film in the interaction of the dyes and the way film curves work and the way photosensitive materials and dye couplers work, that gives this glow, you know, and enhances it. But, and flesh tone is very complex. There's all kinds of subtle colors. There's greens and reds and yellows and blues all in this flesh tone. So you get this beautiful balance and glow, but if you want to just, uh, I just want a little bit more red, you know, and you just touch like maybe one point, it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So you can work in like a half a point even, and you work in these really, really subtle differences and you can see them, you know, but the nice thing is you also can always go right back to it. So I tried two points, now nah, let's go back to one, let's say four points. Whereas uh, if you're working with your trackables, let's say you're trying to make the flesh warmer, you, do you do it in the highlights, you do it in the midtones, which trackable do you move? But then as you move it towards, let's say red, it's like, no, 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 no. I liked what you had before. Well, <laughs> how do you get back to it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a ball. You swung it somewhere, you know? And so this is very precise. And again, the language was the language that Todd and Ed spoke, yeah. film, printer lights. And the output looks more film. Carol does not look like it was done electronically. It really looks like it was a film print. And that, to me, is what my goal was and their goal. If you start working with, again, differentials and all, that is really television stuff. And it really makes it more TV. When you work in printer lights, you're working a film. When you and I were talking before, you mentioned something about windowing. Um, I'm wondering if you could sort of explain that and elaborate on that. Now you have a basic image. Then, of course, you get into windowing, which is the other clever thing we do and uh for instance the the beautiful scene i love the scene at the first meeting at the first restaurant you know it's just beautiful kate is so elegant and the red banquettes and everything you know it's just a beautiful beautiful stuff now to get their contrast and everything the blacks the whites just right there are practical lights behind them in the restaurant you know there are a series of them there's one right behind their rooney's head and then there are a couple back further and of course those lights clip because the display can't keep both the contrast i want on Kate and Rooney, and also whole texture in yeah. the highlights. So that's where windows come in. So what you do is, and most scholars know this, you'll draw a window around that bulb with a little lampshade, and then you will put a soft transition. We Quantel uses a Gaussian transition. So you're transitioning from the, the window out into the surround. And then the important thing is you can then take that window and point it back to the input. So you, we work in cascades of the Quantel. So I may have like two or three cascade layers of different things where I manipulate the color. But now I've, I want to hold that light. So I do the light and I point it back to the input. And it's just like it's a brand new color correction, like nothing else exists, like a raw, raw film on the gate. And then I build a new color for it. So now it has all the texture I want. And I bring the texture down, get it just right. And of course, I make the transition. I have a softness control to control the softness. And that's it. So there was a few shots where her head bobs in and out of the light. So of course, in the Quantel, then I draw the window and with many points and then I 
you know, animate the window on a frame-by-frame basis. In auto, it will remember everything I do. So I'll kind of move in the, the window, touch in, move this in, creep it around her head a little better. And you do it frame-by-frame frame yeah. because otherwise she her head would go into the window. And you don't want that. And that's how it's done. So windowing is very important. And the fact you could always be pointing under. So on one scene, you can have multiple, multiple, multiple color corrections. You can have windows all over. Every area can have a different contrast, different saturation. It's very, very, you're really sculpturing that image. You know, it's like the ultimate darkroom where you're dodging and burning everywhere, you know. So the other thing we use a lot and oh, a good chunk of the photo uh, images have it is a vignette. And a vignette... Just do a nice, simple oval with a delicate blend at the edge and a slight darkening at the edge. And because cameras in those days weren't as good as modern lenses, I should say lenses in those days, there was some fall off. So, you know, exposure and as the edges of the lens, there was less exposure and it get a little slightly darker. And of course, the modern, more modern lenses, you know, Ed was using covered the frame perfectly yeah so by putting a slight vignette it can liken back to the photography of that era and we used it probably almost every shot it was a gentle vignette and it helps also you can make the vignette a little stronger and really call attention in so if you know stuff is distracting on the sides you know when they're outside and they're having the argument, you know, in the house and there's the house itself. There's a lot of windows on darkening that down and changing it because it was just the way the light hit that stone and was too too bright. So that is so windows are extremely important. Actually, I used windows very importantly on the last scene. The shot of the idea is Rooney has entered the oak room of the hotel and Kate is with a group of her friends. She's been invited if she wants to come, but they don't know if she will come. So Kate is there and she's interacting very nicely and Rudy moves in and starts, there's this icon, she, she sees Kate. But the first thing is the camera kind of moves around, you don't really know, and suddenly there you see her and it kind of wanders a bit. And what I did was I drew a window around Kate and the idea of Rooney's attention is about Kate. She doesn't want to care about any other person in that restaurant. It's Kate. So we do the window and then again, I put a very nice soft transition into the back plate, but in, in the back part of the window, I darken it. So I take the whole, all the other people in the restaurant down, a little darker, a little less saturation, you know, just gently take it down and tracked it. So I, you know, I basically keyframed. That was the easiest way to do it. So what happens is the effect is Carol just punches forward. She glows and everything else is a more subdued, which again, it's Rooney's attention. She's looking at Carol. She doesn't care about that diner over there. And I did the very same thing to Rooney. So Rooney's walking in the room and again, Rooney just pops and everything else just has gently goes back. It's very subtle. Yeah, but yeah. important. You know, Todd loved it and Ed loved it. It really brought us into the two faces and with the eye contact, which is really the is so powerful. This is something I kind of use all the time and a lot of people might not have thought about it or whatever. But traditionally, colors will do often what's called a ride where you'd be going from one density to another over a period of time. So what you do is you keyframe. You start one density and then you go to the point where you want it and keyframe that. And so contrast or saturation or brightness changes over that period. But very often you see it, you know, you're panning out and you actually see the density changing. I do it in a completely different way that is absolutely invisible. And I'll explain it on one of the very powerful shots where Kate is checking out of the motel and the innkeeper hands her 
the telegram, which of course is from her husband that she's been caught. <laughs> okay. In, a, in her affair. And she grabs everything and runs through the whole, you know, rest of the lobby of the hotel outside. So I have the exposure proper for Kate talking to the, um, the woman at the desk, but then the outside is very different, very brighter. But film's holding that range. So I have to get in a transition from her running through the rest of the the lobby out into this brightness. So what I do is I make two layers. I take the Quantel works in multiple layers. So I take the V1 layer and I copy that clip and I put on V2. So the B, the cut from the shot before into goes into V2. The top layer in color correction and any or compositing is always the dominant layer. And then you can change transparency to bring it down to the second layer. So what I do is I set the color correction that I want for that part. And then on the second layer, on V1 layer, the lower layer, then I set the color correction I want for the exterior. And then what I do is I do a little transparency ride, go back to V2 layer and start a transparency from that point I want to start and then to the end point. So by the end, you're on the exterior correction. So what it's doing is doing a cross dissolve between two color corrections completely different than a ride. And this is so important and absolutely invisible. So it's a good trick. If your color corrector has multiple video layers, make a copy, do different color corrections and put a, just change the opacity in a dynamic from the top layer to the bottom layer. A very, very powerful way of working. The film was set in winter. Was there any issues where you were required to alter things to make it look like winter if it was spring-like or anything like that? One of the things was brought to my attention, right, because they edited the Goldcrest. And they would, it was kind of great because they, from early on, they would be cutting and usually Perry would come in or Alfonso would be there and Perry was the one kind of organizing the shots and that was her assistant. Perry would say, we're really concerned about this. One thing is the film was shot between winter and went into spring. So, there are a lot of winter shots, and there was real snow in some of them, and otherwise it's CGI snow or a mixed bag of both, you know, to get you through the whole winter. It's a Christmas story. Unfortunately, then a lot of the shots were then shot in spring. So now you have green grass, and it's not fall or winter. So they were concerned, could I turn the, the green, you know, more brown or aged, you know, dead. And a little like, oh, brother, where art thou thing, you know? Now, but the Quantel has a really nice tool, and it's called Revolver. Revolver allows me, well, they call it Revolver, it's kind of British humor, uh, it has six barrels. Yeah. So, on one cascade, I could do six different things. So, I open a barrel one, and I just touch the pixel of green that I want. And then I can go and do many things. I can open the wedge of how much green from what value of green to what green. And then what do you want to do with it? So I can change saturation or I can change hue. So what I'll do is just swing the hue towards yellow of just those pixels. And it was brown grass. And I did it on a lot of shots. And trees, there were a lot, anything green, trees, grass, all done that way. It's very efficient. And it's different than keying, because the other way of color correction is you key. You set a key on a color, you make a matte, you maybe defocus the matte, and then you change it. This is actually better for this, because it's actually a LUT. It actually is like a spike in the LUT, and it causes only those values to transfer. And so it's not only keying where suddenly you go to a darker part of the grass and it starts clipping or keying out. It's a LUT. And very powerful. So I use that 
and then there's six barrels. So, for instance, if there's another phase of green, so maybe the trees were one green, I used barrel one, and maybe the grass is barrel two, and I did different things for the trees and the grass. But that, that was a powerful part of the thing. And they were very happy how easy it was. I think, you know, oh, my God, this might be so difficult. <laughs> it was so easy. Now, I have the the one last question that I ask everyone, and that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film? Oh, guilty pleasure. Huh? Okay. I don't know about guilty pleasure. <laughs> but I can say a couple of films that kind of moved me from my original intention as a young person wanting to be a still photographer. I originally wanted to be a National Geographic photographer. Mm-hmm. I went to RIT for that and all. But what talked me into film with two films, I mean, Dr. Zhivago, which mm-hmm. I saw when it first came out. I was pretty young then. Then also 2001, Space Odyssey. And that came out when I was still at RIT in college back in the 60s. I graduated RIT in 69. But they were two films that were very important. And I said, damn, this is, I want to be there. And I'll tell you, I enjoy... Being a colorist more than being a cinematographer. Yeah. I kind of jokingly call myself an armchair cinematographer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then you do the beautiful work, you do the hard work in the field, yeah. bring it to me, and we'll make beautiful pictures yeah. together, you know? I'm sorry I have to wrap up, but thank you so much for, for letting me interview. I've really enjoyed chatting, and uh, I think we had a lot of fun. So, that was my interview with John. Now again, I couldn't have done this without the help of the Blue Collar Post-Production Collective, and you can check them out at bluecollarpostcollective.com. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us, you can get us on Twitter at AOTG Network, on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network, or of course, just join us on AOTG.com and submit any of the content that you find this post-production related. I'd like to thank John Dedell for joining me, as well as Katie Hinson for helping set this up, and of course everyone at the Blue Collar Post Collective. I'm Gordon Burkell, thanks for listening.